Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We want to welcome tonight our, uh, our speaker, our teacher, uh, Professor Joseph Pierce. Uh, this evening is a senior editor at the Augustan Institute. I just spent, by the way, uh, Professor, a, no, a couple of days at Napa Institute with a lot of your, a lot of people from Augustan Institute. Um, and he's uh, from also the Tolkien and Lewis Chair in Literary Studies at Holy Apostles College and Seminary, a native of England. Joseph Pierce is an internationally acclaimed author of many books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man, and Myth, the Unmasking of Oscar Wilde and C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. His world-recognized biographies have been translated into nine other languages, uh, in addition to hosting two television series about Shakespeare on EWTN. He has written and presented documentaries on Catholicism, uh, the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and has served as consultant for film documentaries on J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Francis Thompson and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We're thrilled. I'm thrilled to welcome for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Professor Joseph Pierce. Welcome. Thank you, Father. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to be here as part of what the Institute of Catholic Culture is doing. I've obviously followed what you've been doing for many years, um, and it's a Great to finally be a part of what you're doing. So thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you for all those that are attending. I can see a handful of you on my on my screen, but I know there are many dozens of others that I can't see. So thank you all for being here. And we're going to be giving. I'm going to be giving two talks. Uh, obviously, the one this evening and the one next Thursday evening. The the theme of both talks that co that connects the two together uh, is the inklings. Um, so of course the inkling is such a broad topic. We could we could give we could give a whole in fact could give a whole course. I have given whole courses on the inklings. So you know, in just two talks we have to hone things in. So we won't be mentioning lesser known though very worthy inklings such as Roy Campbell, the poet, or, or uh, Charles Williams, or um, Warney Lewis. Uh, or some of the others, Owen Barfield, all of these other worthies, if you like, that are part of the Inklings. We're going to concentrate on the two best-known Inklings, who are, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. So I'm going to start with Tolkien tonight and conclude with C.S. Lewis next week. So that's the approach I'm going to take. Um, I would say also at the outset that I'm planning to try to keep my talk down to no longer than 45 minutes and the reason for that is that i think that sometimes one of the most dynamic parts of any uh, uh, talk can be or perhaps even should be uh, the q a session right the questions and answers so please while i'm speaking if you have questions uh, jot them down uh, and put your cyber hand up um your virtual hand and those that are that control uh, cyberspace at least within this framework this evening will that uh, will allow you to speak appropriately and i'll do my best to answer okay so looking at the clock now um 
I'm going to try to keep what the, the following to 45 minutes. So tonight, again, I'm going to concentrate on J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, first of all, the phenomenon that is the Lord of the Rings uh, really is astonishing. There have been various, um, uh, way, there are various ways of measuring what is the best-selling book of all time. And if you exclude religious books such as the Bible and the Quran, many of which, of course, are given away free, so it's a whole different ball game, so to speak. If you talk about uh, other works, other books, the best-selling books of all time, most people tend to agree that the, the biggest-selling book of all time is probably um, uh, Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes. And uh, the reason for that would be, I, would, I, I sometimes say jokingly, and for all you Spanish speakers out there, joke warning, all right? Sense of humor necessary. So don't take anything, any of this um, uh, too seriously. But I sometimes quip, sometimes joke, that the reason that Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes is the greatest uh, biggest selling book of all time is that the Spanish only ever wrote one book and they all read it. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, obviously that's not true. I know that's not true, but it is true that, uh, that, 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 that um, Don Quixote was published 400 years ago, over 400 years ago. It is the preeminent uh, Spanish work of literature. Every Spanish high school uh, student uh, for the last several hundred years has taught it. So the majority of people that buy Don Quixote buy it as a set text at college, okay? In other words, they're, if you like, forced to buy it because they're going to study it, right? I, I say, by the way, that, you know, that the, uh, the Spanish have uh, Miguel Santos, we have Shakespeare, right? So we, we have, you know, three dozen different works by William Shakespeare. Of course, none of them are going to be in the top ten because we can pick and choose, right? Um, but that's the that's the that's the, the, the leader. Second place, as, uh, according to most criteria of, of testing th these things, is the Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And again, this is a, it's a great because Charles Dickens wrote many good books. So the fact that you have any one of them in second place is great. But again, the vast majority of people that that that, that read a Tale of Two Cities do so within the context of a, a high school course. In other words, it's a set text; they have to buy it. In third place in the best-selling books of all time is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, this is astonishing for, for many reasons. First of all, it's hardly ever taught uh, at, at school or college. So very few people buy it because they have to. People buy it because they want to, okay? And they read it because they want to. And also, uh, Don Quixote has been published 400 years. Two City has been published 150 years. And even now, The Lord of the Rings has only been published 60 or so years. So an astonishing success. Incidentally, in that top 10, we also have um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by certain C.S. Lewis. So the Inklings, which is the topic of our, our talks this week and next week, are phenomenal. Two of the best-selling books of all time written by members of this uh, small literary group. So moving on to The Lord of the Rings. What is it? about the Lord of the Rings, if you like, which is the key to its success. Why is it so popular? Well, it's a great work of literature, of course. It's not a novel, it's an epic. So it has more in common with the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, uh, the Aeneid, and, and uh, you, you, Beowulf. Uh, Tolkien was, of course, an expert on Beowulf, uh, the Divine Comedy. So it has more in common with these epics rather than the modern novel. Um, but at the heart of it, it's a great story. And that's obviously very important. At the heart of it, uh, what makes The Lord of the Rings so successful and so popular is its depth. Um, its theological depth, its philosophical depth. 
it's historical depth, um, all of which are powerful parts of the whole. And it's all encapsulated in what J.R.R. Tolkien said himself about the work. And I'm quoting him, him here now, word for word, verbatim. Quote, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. I'll repeat that, verbatim. Tolkien's words, not mine. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Well, uh, I have no argument with that. And what I hope over the next 40 minutes or so is to show you uh, the fundamentally religious and Catholic aspects or dimension of the Lord of the Rings. I would perhaps argue, however, with the great Tolkien, that it, perhaps it isn't of course. In other words, for many people, it's not that obvious. And that, in fact, I think is part of the secret of his success. If its Catholicism was, was on a shallow level on the surface, um, it wouldn't have the millions of atheists reading it, the millions of agnostics, the millions of people of various faiths or no faith reading it, because they're attracted to the Catholicism and they don't know it because the Catholicism is subsumed within the very fabric of the story itself. But it does come to the surface and it is um, discernible. And I'm going to hopefully over the next 40 minutes or so show you how. Well, first of all, Tolkien in his famous lecture or essay, on fairy stories. I recommend that, by the way, there's so many good things in it, um, a, a talk in its own right. But one of the things that he said uh, is that fairy stories hold up a mirror to man, right? a mirror de l'homme, a mirror of man, a mirror to man. They show us ourselves. So when we, when we look at a great uh, work of fiction or a great fairy story or a great myth or a great epic, um, we are being shown ourselves. And if we're being shown ourselves, then it's not a work which is a fantasy in the bad sense of the word, uh, a work that, that is an escape from reality. OK, it's actually much more than that. It's something which shows us ourselves on a much deeper level than perhaps we're accustomed to seeing ourselves. So in that sense, it's an escape from the shadow lands, the mere surface into the real us and the real cosmos in which we find ourselves. So it's an escape into reality on a deeper level. So let me explain uh, that. First of all, in The Lord of the Rings, we see ourselves as we are. In other words, we don't see ourselves as the modern world sees us, as uh, the, the, the scientific label, scientific and in inverted commas, homo sapiens, okay, which means in Latin, wise men. Now, Anybody who knows anything about humanity knows that's a very dumb label for who we are, all right? Uh, whatever, whatever we are as, 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 as a, a species, as a race, as a people, wisdom is not something that strikes, that comes to mind, right? We make the same stupid mistakes every single generation from the beginning to the present day. We never seem to learn. We're not very wise. Um, of course, we're meant as individuals, all of us, to grow in wisdom. But it's not something we're born, it's not something that, that's innate to us, it's something we acquire if we have sufficient humility and faith and reason. So homo sapiens is a silly label for us. Well, that's not the, the, the silly uh, way of seeing ourselves that you get, you get in the Lord of the Rings. Nor, you get, nor do you get the other way that we often see, see ourselves these days, or the modern world sees ourselves, and that's as homo economicus. Okay, that basically we are just greedy, self-centered people who only really want to acquire, acquire things. Uh, the one with the most, the one with the most toys wins. Okay, 
when the one with the most toys doesn't win, he dies, right? Like the rest of us. And he doesn't take, you don't take the toys with you, all right? So what you don't see in the Lord of the Rings is homo economicus. So Tolkien doesn't show us these false selves, these false images of who we are as human beings. He shows us who we are for what we actually are. And there's two labels that, uh, um, that are shown to us about who we are in the Lord of the Rings. The first is the Greek, the Greek word anthropos, from which we get the word anthropology. Anthropos in the Greek means he who looks up. Okay. What distinguishes us, or one of the things that distinguishes us from the rest of uh, God's creatures, which makes us made in his image in a manner that the other creatures aren't, is that we are not slaves to instinct. Right? I sometimes say that uh, the animal grazes, man gazes. Okay? So the animal, uh, basically dictated to by his instinct or its instinct, is facing down, right? grazing the earth, just doing what it does to satisfy its appetites and its needs. Humanity transcends that. We look up and we gaze at the stars and we wonder, what does all this signify? Why can we see the stars? Why can we make sense of the stars? I mean, in some sense, by the way, each of us is infinitely larger than the largest star and the furthest star or the sun. Because we can see the sun, the sun can't see us, okay? The sun is an inanimate object without a brain, without a soul. But we can see it, it can't see us because we are able to look up and wonder. So in The Lord of the Rings on and The Hobbit, we often see that the, the, the sun or the moon, which of course just reflects the light of the sun, or the stars, we look up to see those and we gain hope because they're signifiers of a light which comes ultimately from God. So, for instance, Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, in one of the darkest moments in The Lord of the Rings, says, above all shadows rides the sun. Uh, in other words, beyond all sin, beyond all darkness, and, and Tolkien has an Augustinian understanding, understanding of evil. Evil is just the absence of the good. It has no being in itself because God does not create bad things. So evil is the absence of the good. The shadow which is cast by the absence of the light, okay? But above all shadows rise the sun. In other words, above all darkness, above all sin is God. And that should be cause, uh, cause for hope in all of us. And we see it in, we see it in The Hobbit with, the, with the, 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 the light of the moon by which the bard pierces the black hole above Smaug's heart. We see it at various times, right? The, the, the light, the sun, the stars, the moon are signifiers of the presence of God above all shadows. The other uh, definition of, of us that we see in the Lord of the Rings is uh, Latin. So we have Greek anthropos, we have Latin homo viator. Okay, who we are are men or people on a journey or a quest or an adventure. In other words, each of us, all of us, without exception, our only purpose in life is to get to heaven. All right, we have a goal. And that goal is the quest on which we're meant to travel, hopefully, uh, even though we're going to fall, even though we're going to face perils along the way, even though it's impossible to get to the to, to complete the quest without facing dragons. Right. Uh, the dragons of sin, the dragons of darkness, the dragon who is Satan himself and his legion. Um, so in this sense, the quest, the journey um, in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is 
a mirror of each of our journeys, right? We're meant to take on the evils of life to achieve the only thing we're here for, which is to be united with God in heaven. So the mirror of man that was shown in the Lord of the Rings is who we really are. Anthropos and Homo viator, not Homo sapiens and Homo economicus. So it shows us ourselves. Okay, the next question, I having said, well, who we are, what sort of human person are we shown, is what sort of cosmos is Middle Earth in which the action takes place? Well, we're told in the very opening sentence of the Silmarillion in the creation story, the sort of elvish genesis, um, that in the beginning was the one, capital O, Iluvata, the All-Father, or the Father of All. So in the very first sentence, we learn something crucial. That Middle Earth is not an atheistic cosmos with no God, nor is it a polytheistic cosmos with many gods. It's a monotheistic cosmos with one God, the father of all. So that's the cosmos in which we're living. We then, uh, when we go, when we travel into Middle Earth, in which Tolkien says, by the way, Middle Earth is not another world, it's our world. It's, it's showing us our own world as it's showing us our, our own selves. So in that same creation story, Iluvata, the All-Father, declares unto the people of Middle-earth um, what he calls the great music. So the depiction we have of God is as, as a creator. In the, in the, in the, we take the word creator sort of in vain. We use it so often. But really we should think about God as the great composer of the symphony of creation um, and the great artist. Uh, the great poet, the, the Greek word poesis means to make or to create. This is the God that's depicted to us, that's represented for us uh, in Middle Earth. The great artist, the great composer um, who makes beautiful things, right? good, true and beautiful things, as all good artists do. And insofar as we make, sub-create, was Tolkien's words, we're partaking of that divine image, imagination, the ability to make things in our image as we are in ourselves made in his image but what the, and this is profound theology which is at the heart of the whole of uh, the lord of the rings um god doesn't say the creator doesn't say to to the archangelic beings the angelic beings that at this stage are all that, that have been created by him um he doesn't say behold the great music sit back buy yourself some popcorn and listen right he doesn't say that what he says is, behold the great music, play. In other words, we're meant to participate and partake of the divine creation and not merely be passive um, uh, spectators of it. We're part of it. Now, one consequence of that, of course, is that we are free to either play in harmony with the divine will or to bring disharmony and discord to the great music by playing our own tune instead. And this is, of course, this is what Satan does, Melkor in uh, The Lord of the Rings, which means mighty one. Melkor doesn't want, he's the mightiest of the angels. And in his pride, he's too good to be merely part of the orchestra. Okay. He's got his own ideas. So he brings disharmony and discord and darkness into the great music. And there's a war in heaven. And Melkor falls into the void. And the language that Tolkien uses 
uh, is the language of the book of Isaiah, where we apply to the, the fall of Lucifer, star of the morning, um, in, in, into the void, into the darkness. So there's a parallel. But Tolkien is a linguist, and he gives us always throughout the Lord of the Rings linguistic clues. So, Melkor is, his name is Mighty One. But when he falls into the void, when he falls into hell, following his rebellion against God, he has forfeited the name Melkor, which means mighty one. And he is now known by the name of Morgoth. Now, Morgoth means enemy. Now, Tolkien's a linguist, right? This is a clue. Lucifer means light bearer because he's the brightest of the angels. But when he becomes the prince of darkness and falls into the void, he forfeits the name Lucifer, light bearer, and becomes known as Satan, which in Hebrew means enemy. So Tolkien's given us this clue. Melkor is merely uh, the name in his language, his invented language for Satan. Both words mean enemy. So Melkor is Satan. And then we're told in the Silmarillion, that Sauron, the Dark Lord in the Lord of the Rings, is the greatest of Melkor's servants. So the greatest of Satan's servants is the Dark Lord in the Lord of the Rings. Like Satan, he's a demon. He's a fallen angel and a very mighty one, a fallen archangel, if you like, in the, in the, 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 uh, the, the principalities and powers. So he's the, he's the dark force, the Dark Lord in the Lord of the Rings. So one thing we, 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 we do not have in Middle Earth, first of all, it's not an atheistic cosmos. And nor is it a relativistic one, okay? There's one God, one truth, and evil is not something, you know, that we make up as we go along. You say it's evil, I say it's good. No relativism. The evil in the Lord of the Rings is the work of demonic powers. And to fall into evil is to become a servant of those demonic powers. So this is the cosmos and the sort of people that populate uh, that cosmos in the Lord of the Rings. Now we get into the story itself. Look at some of the other evil characters. We'll start on the, on the dark side of things and we'll get lighter as we go, go along. Sauron we've discussed, Melkor we've discussed. How about Wormtongue? What a great name for an evil character, Wormtongue. Um, now, again, Tolkien is an Anglo-Saxon scholar. He He's an expert in Old English. He uh, wrote the definitive, seminal, uh, critical essay on Beowulf. He also translated the whole of the poem and other works from Old English and Middle English. So he's an Anglo-Saxon scholar. He knows what he's talking about. The Anglo-Saxon word for dragon or serpent was worm. V-M-W-Y-R-M. Worm. So worm tongue means dragon tongue or serpent tongue and Tolkien even makes it even more apparent because in the exchange between Gandalf and Wormtongue in the presence of Theoden um, Gandalf says see Theoden here is a snake pointing at Wormtongue he then says echoing the words of God himself in Genesis down on your belly snake and Wormtongue hisses his replies. Um, so again, all the symbolism connects evil characters with the satanic. 
But the other evil character, if you like, um, and the most important one, and the one which is the, gives the officers the key to unlocking the whole of the Lord of the Rings, is the ring itself. What is the ring? Um, and of course, there's a question, and we, we need to answer if we're going to understand the Lord of the Rings at any deep level. Well, Tolkien answers this for us by giving us the date on which the ring is destroyed. Um, again, Tolkien is following the uh, literary form of Beowulf. In, in the third part of Beowulf, I don't know how many of you have read Beowulf, but it's basically in three parts. The third part of Beowulf is Beowulf's uh, fight with the dragon. And in that, the Beowulf poet gives us all sorts of numerical clues to connect Beowulf's struggle with the dragon with our Lord's passion and death and resurrection. Uh, numerical clues, right? The number of people following him, etc. No time to talk about that in any length. But Tolkien follows that same model. So, but what he does is not numbers, but dates. So the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. Now, this is, I would argue, uh, the most important date on the Christian calendar. Now, you might think, well, hang on a second, about Easter Sunday uh, or uh, Christmas Day. But let's look at March the 25th. As Catholic Christians, you will know, I presume, that March 25th is the Feast of the Annunciation. Um, and this is a more important feast day than Christmas. Nothing heretical about that, because as Catholics, we believe that um, life begins at conception, right? Not at birth. That's, that's not controversial. Now, if life begins at conception, not at birth, God becomes man on March the 25th. The word becomes flesh on March the 25th. Right? Not Christmas Day, but the, the, uh, the Annunciation. So this is a singular importance when our Lord takes on human flesh to redeem us, to save us. So if that's not enough, this is the date on which the ring's destroyed, the date that Tolkien chooses for the ring to be destroyed. But more than that, according to tradition, the date of the crucifixion is also March the 25th. Now, we forget that because, of course, we celebrate Easter, uh, Good Friday, the Triduum. We, we celebrate as, uh, as a movable feast, right? It's not the same date each year. So we don't... Um, ascribe a particular date to the crucifixion. But of course, the crucifixion happened on one particular day in history. It happened in history once, right? Our Lord was, was put on a cross once in history on a particular day. And tradition has always maintained that date is March the 25th. Tolkien is a medievalist. He knows the tradition. So in choosing March the 25th, he is selecting the date the ring is going to be destroyed, not just the, the, the Feast of the Annunciation, but the date of our Lord's crucifixion. So if you add the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ, coupled, of course, with his resurrection, you have encapsulated our redemption, that which saves us from the power of sin. Now, if that's the case, the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. That makes the ring itself synonymous with sin itself. Sin is destroyed on that date. The ring is destroyed on that date. They are one, okay? The one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them is the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them, original sin. Now, once you realize this, the, we understand that putting the ring on is the act of sin. It's choosing to sin. 
choosing the power of darkness and wearing it. When that happens, on one level, we become invisible. Okay, I mean, if, you know, if I had you in front of me, I made a, maybe I'd have asked um, what happens, and you'd probably say it makes us invisible. But that's only partly true. It makes us invisible in the good world that God made because we excommunicate ourselves from it because we choose the darkness instead of the light. But it makes us more visible than ever to Sauron, to the powers of darkness, to the demonic world, because when we sin, we put the ring on, we enter that world. And if we keep the ring on, if we, if we wear it habitually, so if I've got it on all the time, I keep putting it on over and over again, we begin to fade. We begin to shrivel. There should be a new word in the English language. I'm doing my best to get it to take on by using it all the time. The verb to golemize. Okay? We golemize ourselves when we, when, when we habitually wear the ring. And I, I would say that the, the character of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings is one of the most brilliant psychological depictions of the impact of sin on the human soul. Because we can't see that externally, superficially, on the veneer, we are the same as our neighbor. But internally, we are a shriveled wreck, a mere pathetic shadow of the hobbit we were meant to be. So, if the wearing of the ring is the act of sin, the bearing of the ring, in other words, carrying it, are not wearing it is like the carrying of the cross. In other words, the bearing of sin and not the committing of sin. So in that sense, um, we can see Frodo as not just a ring bearer, but as a cross bearer, as one who carries the weight of sin. Tolkien wants us to see Frodo in this way as because as a cross bearer, of course, he's also a Christ figure. Tolkien is much more subtle than C.S. Lewis, who will be the topic of next week's talk. Because in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is always a figure of Christ at all times and all seven stories. There's no mistaking the fact. Lord of the Rings is much more subtle. Nobody is a figure of Christ at all times. But some characters, either in some attributes or in certain actions, um, become Christ figures. So in so far as Frodo is the ring bearer, he is a cross bearer insofar as he's a cross bearer he's a christ figure and again tolkien gives us uh, a clue by way of a date to uh, to make this point to us so for instance frodo and the fellowship of the ring leave rivendell on december the 25th so frodo's journey from rivendell to mount doom golgotha uh, is the journey on March the 25th, is the journey of Christ from his birth in Bethlehem to his death on Golgotha, Mount Doom, December 25th to March 25th. So Tolkien is deliberately signifying that aspect of Frodo as a Christ figure. If that's the case, of course, Samwise Gamgee could be seen as the loyal disciple of Christ who follows his master even into the, the valley of the shadow of death, into Mordor itself. But Tolkien, again, is, is, is sufficiently subtle that there are other characters that remind us of Christ. Gandalf, 
Gandalf, when he lays down his life for his friends on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, um, no greater love has any man, says our Lord, than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Christ shows us how to do that. Gandalf, emulating that, if you like, shows us how to do it. But beyond that, of course, when we read the work for the first time, we um, we think he's dead. Now, unless the story's been ruined for us, the story's been spoiled to us by an older sibling um, telling us what happened, or worse, because we made the fatal mistake of watching the Peter Jackson movie before reading the book, um, uh, that we, we will believe that Gandalf is dead, and we will be as desolate and desolated uh, by his death as are his companions. And for a hundred or so pages, we believe he's dead. And then when he's resurrected, um, we share the joy of the unexpected catastrophe, as Tolkien would call it, this sudden joyous turn in a story. But when Gandalf's resurrected, he's not just resurrected, he's transfigured. So we're reminded in Gandalf's resurrection, not just of the resurrection of Christ, but the transfiguration of Christ. Because we can't see him because he's, he's clothes his robe is so dazzling white it's like the sun shining in our eyes so in the end so that we can see him he puts his gray cloak back over him and it's as if the sun has gone in uh, he's now gandalf the white so we have in gandalf the death resurrection and transfiguration so of course in that in that aspect he reminds us of christ but he's not like aslan a christ figure all the time aragorn Aragorn uh, is a Christ figure in so much as he in so much as he's the true king. Um, we're told that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. But even more than that, we're told that only the true king can take the paths of the dead and survive. Anybody else who's taken that path never emerges again. They become one of the dead. But the true king, so legend says, can descend into the land of the dead and come through alive. Aragorn is a true king, not only descends into the path of the dead, he has the power to release the dead themselves from their curse. So they become warriors on the side of good. He opens the gates of hell. Um, again, parallels with, with Christ are inescapable. So much more I could say. I'd like to say more about the elves, for instance. But I'm not going to because we have very limited time. I want to end or come towards the conclusion by talking about us. I've talked about how Tolkien depicts us as homo viator uh, or as anthropos. But he also depicts us in certain characters. So if some characters are Christ figures, other, others are everyman figures. They signify or represent us. They're our representatives in the story. And there is, again, because Tolkien's subtle, several characters. Frodo is an everyman figure. Sam is an everyman figure. The hobbits in general are everyman figures. But there's one figure who represents us more starkly and powerfully than any other. And that's Boromir. And that's sobering, right? <laughs> because if you know the story, that's sobering. That Boromir is the one who represents us. Now, why is that? Well, very simply, he's the only representative of humanity in the Fellowship of the Ring. 
right? We have the representative of the elves. We have four hobbits, of course, uh, a wizard. We have uh, an elven representative, and we have a dwarf representative, and one one representative of, of, of a man. Aragorn's a man, but he represents kingship. He's there as the king, right? Not as a man. The one who represents us is Boromir. This is a sobering thought, a sobering reality, because Boromir is, of course, the traitor. He's the one who betrays the fellowship. He's the one who tries to steal the ring. And it's very easy for us judgmentally to point the finger of scorn at Boromir, you idiot. And uh, you don't represent me. <laughs> I have nothing to do with you. But let's think about it. His people, his country, his land, Minas Tirith, Gondor, is about to be overrun by an army of orcs led by the greatest of Satan's servants, who's a demon. Now, in the old days of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union an, an evil empire. And it might indeed have been an evil empire, but it's not as evil as this empire, all right? However bad, however bad Stalin and Brezhnev were, they weren't a demon. They weren't the greatest of Satan's servants, right? And they didn't have an army of orcs, right? They had an army of human beings. So this is the enemy. And the, the, the strength of the enemy is such that there's no, there's no hope, right? There's no way that his land, his people, his country can withstand the invasion of these evil forces. So for him, the ring is a gift. It would be, a, it'd be foolish not to use it. What other hope do they have? Now, we could draw parallels, if you like, with nuclear weapons. I'm going to leave that lingering for you to contemplate and meditate upon. Whether there are some weapons that are so evil that they should never be used, regardless of the justification. But anyway, I'm leaving that lingering for you. But the wise know, as regards the ring, that if you use evil means to a good end, in other words, if they did use the ring to conquer Sauron, and if they'd succeeded, in conquering Sauron with Sauron's own weapon, conquering evil with evil, the consequence would be that Minas Tirith and, and, and Gondor would become evil empire, would become an evil empire itself. Now, if Gondor becomes an evil empire, Gondor has not won, it's lost. Better to have gone down fighting the devil and dying heroically than to become part of the devil's army yourself. All right, so you're now thinking, well, it's pretty dark, right? Um, our representative is the traitor, right? The Judas figure. Well, let's go a bit deeper, though. Talking is much, much uh, more subtle than that. Boromir dies heroically. He dies laying down his life for his friends. No greater love has any man. Before he dies, he goes to confession and you actually follow the exact dialogue between Boromir, the repentant sinner, and Aragorn, the Christ figure, in persona Christi as the priest in, 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 in the confessional. The actual form of words follows the form of the sacrament exactly. 
So when Boromir says, I have failed, I'm sorry. And Aragorn says, no, you've won a great victory. Um, Boromir has, he's going to heaven. And the last action, the last act, the last free will act that Boromir makes before he dies is to smile. Because it's a happy ending there. And on top of that, we have Boromir's brother, Faramir, the literary device, okay? Tolkien's connecting them by blood, but he's also connected them uh, allegorically. If Boromir is an everyman figure, his brother is also an everyman figure, Faramir. Now, for those of you that have only um, watched the Peter Jackson movie, uh, I'm not going to say shame on you. Um, well, I just did, but... Um, you would have got a completely distorted understanding of who Faramir is because the way that Peter Jackson depicts Faramir is not the way that Tolkien depicts him. Tolkien depicts Faramir as a saint, a warrior, a hero, but a saint. So Faramir says, I would not pick up the ring of a sight lying at the side of the road. Complete antithesis, and if you like, antidote to Boromir's poison. He also says, I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood. I would not tell a lie to the devil himself. Not the slightest evil means to a good end. So now Tolkien, instead of, you know, he perhaps he has a bad view of us, we're Boromir, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? I'm not Boromir. Well, now we see that he, he gives us, as, as representatives of us, Boromir and Faramir. If you like the Mary Magdalene figure, Boromir, who goes to heaven, and the Mary Immaculate figure, who won't sin, who's also going to heaven. Well, now the argument would be he's being a little bit too soft on us, right? That um, uh, we're not that good. Right? <laughs> certainly not all going to heaven. Well, Tolkien has a triumvirate that represents us. And the third member of that triumvirate is Gollum. Because Gollum is an everyman figure in showing us what happens to us we become addicted to the power of sin. All right, now just to conclude, I want to finish with Gollum. When you read the book for the first time, and it hasn't been spoiled for you, you don't know what's going to happen, and you followed Frodo for, by this stage, 800 or so pages, okay, eight, eight or 900 pages, every inch of the way trudging through various terrain, uh, confronting various evil powers, etc., And he gets to the top of Mount Doom. And he's got the easiest thing now, right? All the hard work's done, right? All he's got to do now is throw the ring into Mount Doom, into the flames. I'll show you how easy it is. Look, I'll show you. There you go. How tough is it? Easy. But I'll do it again. Look. Right. Easy. But Frodo doesn't do it, right? Frodo refuses to do it. And we think, well, we're angry. We're angry with Frodo. Frodo, you are a miserable loser. You've dragged me along for 800, 900 pages for this. And we're angry with him. And then we get our first exercise in literary criticism. How do we the text? Because we think for a moment, think, Hang on for a second, right? It's not Frodo's fault. He has no choice. It's Tolkien's fault. Right? Tolkien's the one telling the story, right? And Tolkien hasn't let Frodo throw the ring in the flame. 
And then you think, Tolkien, you're a miserable loser. How dare you drag me all this way to this anticlimax? But then what happens? That Gollum appears from nowhere. There's a struggle. Gollum bites off the ring finger, falls into the flames. Um, it's a happy ending for him. He doesn't say, oh, dear, I've made a mistake. He says, precious. Right? Got what he wants. Uh, Lewis talks about a lot of this in The Great Divorce. Another topic maybe for next week. But what we realize is this is a profound, this is profound theology. Because we know as Catholic Christians, as Orthodox Christians, that we cannot defeat the power of evil. Remember, the ring signifies evil. We cannot defeat the power of evil through the triumph of the will. Right? We're not Pelagians. The Pelagian heresy was you don't need the sacraments. You don't need the church because you could just hear what Jesus taught us and do it with the power of your own will. But you can't. Without grace, without the supernatural assistance of God, you will fail. Because without that assistance, evil is more powerful than you are. So in the final analysis, the ring is more powerful than Frodo. He does not have the power to overcome the ring. He needs outside assistance. He needs supernatural intervention. He needs grace. And now you think, hang on for a second, Gollum, grace, surely not, right? Surely not. How can Gollum be the agent of grace? Well, let's go back a little bit, right? Towards the beginning of the story, Frodo says, I wish that Uncle Bilbo had killed that miserable creature when he had the chance. It's a pity that he didn't. And Gandalf says, pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Later on in the story, when Frodo has the opportunity to kill Gollum, those words of Gandalf are quoted again verbatim, a whole half page in italics. In other words, Tolkien wants us to remember this. It's important enough. Now, you know, it's not often he's going to completely repeat an, an earlier conversation. And then Frodo says, now I do see him, I do pity him. He doesn't kill him. Later on, Sam has the opportunity to, to kill Gollum and doesn't do so. So on three separate occasions, the hobbits are tested. And they're tested in the most difficult commandment our Lord gives us, to love our enemy. If any of them had failed in that commandment, Gollum would not have been there. Evil would have triumphed. So Gollum being there on the precipice at Mount Doom was the reward of grace given because of the obedience to commandments, the virtue earlier in the story. So that, if you like, is um, the coup de grace, the climax. So what we think is an anticlimax is actually the climax. And I've just got to finish one little anecdote. Uh, Tolkien, of course, is a linguist. And you remember the palantir stones, right? The palantiri. They're like seeing stones. And when you look into them, you don't see a complete lie. You know, what you see is really happening, but you only see what the dominant will wants you to see. The dominant will, of course, is Sauron. So what you're seeing is Sauron's propaganda. Now, Palantir in Elvish means far-seeing or far-seer. 
In German, for any of you out there that speak German, the word Fernsehen, which means far-seeing or far-seer, is the German word for television. Um, and even in English, right? Television. Tele, Greek for far, video, Latin for see. So television also means far-seeing. Tolkien's a linguist. This is a joke. He was horrified by the power of radio in World War II, where all sides are telling lies and no one's telling the truth. Propaganda. And when The Lord of the Rings is being written, television is the new thing that's just come out. It's a joke. And the punchline of the joke is that if you watch too much television, like Denethor, you'll commit suicide. So don't do it. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Professor Pierce. What an what a absolute uh, joy. I don't know how else to describe your presentation tonight. And I was just going to begin with uh, Mark's question here because I wasn't aware of this. And maybe, uh, maybe uh, Professor Pierce, you can help us with it. He says, many of the similarities between Tolkien's characters and Christ sound somewhat like allegory. Is Tolkien's alleged disdain for allegory overblown? And I didn't even know there was a, this idea. So could you please respond? Yes, it's, it's a great question. Uh, uh, it's a question I'm asked often. The problem with the question is not very easy to answer in the soundbite, but I will give you the two-minute version. Um, basically, uh, Tolk Tolkien's um, uh, dislike of allegory is expressed in the, in the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. And he says, I despise allegory in all its forms. And so, of course, for, for Tolkien's non-Christian, atheistic readers, they always quote this. As, uh, as I mean, saying what you're saying is nonsense because Tolkien said this, he despises allegory. Well, my response to that, first of all, is that Tolkien says the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. There's no mention of the Catholic Church. Uh, he says it's, a, it's, it's a, a Catholic work. The argument is not with me, it's with him. But also uh, in other places, in his letters, for instance, he refers to the Lord of the Rings specifically as an allegory. So... First of all, what he's guilty of is a loose use of words. Now, um, the allegory he doesn't like is formal or crude allegory, which uses personified abstraction. Okay, so that, for instance, in uh, the Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis, the, the, a monster called the Spirit of the Age is vanquished by a beautiful woman in shining armor called Reason, who has two younger sisters called Theology and Philosophy. All right. And in Boethius, the constellation of philosophy, lady philosophy is just philosophy. Right. She's not a character. She's a cardboard cutout. She's only there to represent an idea. All right. Personified abstraction. That's the allegory Tolkien doesn't like. But the other extreme, go to sort of Augustine's uh, 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 book on Christian doctrine. You know that all words, St. Augustine tells us, all words are allegories. Right. What I'm saying now, if you didn't speak English, I'm just making meaningless noises, right? But I'm making a noise that if you understand the sign, right, you understand what I'm saying. So at the most basic level, the word allegory comes from the Greek allegoros, which just means that which speaks of another. So the noise I make is just a noise, but it's allegorical because it speaks of another. All words are allegories. So, you know, uh, is the Lord of the Rings allegorical? In one sense, yes. But in that formal personified abstraction sense, no. So that's that's the that's the short answer. I, I wrote a book called uh, um, uh, Frodo's Journey, uh, and the whole of the first chapter addresses this issue for those that want to go deeper. Wonderful, thank you, Professor. We have a question from John Conlon, who looks like did read the books. 
and he asks, what are we to make of Tom Bombadil? <laughs> I love this audience because you're asking all the great questions that are impossible to answer in one minute. Um, <laughs> again, the, 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 the shortest answer is in that same book. By the way, all of you should get all of these people that ask questions that we that give me the excuse to mention my books should get 10% commission, okay? <laughs> um, but again, in Frodo's journey, apart from the chapter on allegory, there's a whole chapter called the the Enigma of Tom Bombadil. Um, uh, so I, I I cover it in in great depth there. So that being said, I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> Can you, uh, um, uh, Professor, speak of um, – actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow myself a question. I rarely do this at the Institute, but I just loved your presentation so much, especially the first 15 to 20 minutes where you're talking about Middle Earth. And go back to what I was just mentioning a few seconds ago. Um, you know, as I, as I read Tolkien, I'm, I feel like um, – I, I had to pull off my bookshelf while you were talking, St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise. And I and I just wonder, um, was he a patristic scholar? Uh, did he was he really did he did he love uh, the the that kind of intertestamental period where they really had this idea, this developed idea of Jerusalem as the middle of the earth and the original location of the Garden of Eden? Well, um, Tolkien was a lifelong practicing Catholic. That's the first thing to know, right? Um, so he knew his faith, but he didn't make as far as we're aware, as far as I'm aware, and I think as far as we're aware, if anything I've read, a systematic study of theology, uh, certainly patristics. But he was a, a medievalist, by which I mean not just, uh, you know, we think of the high Middle Ages, right? So the, maybe the 11th to the 14th century. But he was a medievalist in the older sense of the word, right? He's an Anglo-Saxon scholar. So it, he would have been at home with the early church. Uh, he... His, his library was extensive. Um, I can't remember all that's in it now, but he didn't make a systematic study of theology. So I couldn't say that he he uh, he studied the fathers. He he probably didn't in a systematic sense. But if he if the extent to which uh, something is a work of literature, uh, so you talk about St Ephraim's hymns, I would be very. He certainly he, he spoke uh, uh, wrote so read and wrote Latin very well, Greek very well. He was a linguist. So all of the original texts would have been accessible to him. He wouldn't have required translation. So for someone who loved reading and loved the church and loved literature and loved beauty, I think certainly the more uh, the, the more literary works from the early church, he would have known well. Okay. Uh, so we have a question. I'm going to try and combine two, asking about two different characters. Uh, what does... Denethor represent in comparison to his two sons and then who does Lord Elrond represent? Okay well the first thing I would say is that Tolkien doesn't write formal allegory so we shouldn't be looking that every single character represents something all right that's not the way that Tolkien wrote when he wants to make sure that if he wants to do it he signifies it. Um, so obviously in one sense Denethor is the one who falls under the power of television right he falls under the power of the Palantiri and he despairs. Um, so it, it, I often compare Denethor with Theoden and I even suggest that there is, I don't know whether this is intentional on Tolkien's part or not, if not it's a uh, providential coincidence, that Theoden and Denethor are near anagrams and they are phonetic anagrams, all right? So they got the same sort of sounds, Theoden, Denethor. Uh, and I, I see Denethor as representing the old paganism and Theoden Theodore is representing the, the Christian king, the medieval Christian king. 
So Denethor, and I even say Denethor, right? Den as in of Thor, as in you know the uh, the pagan god, as as the old pagan despair, which ultimately uh, uh, commits suicide, as uh, sacrifices, or at least tries to sacrifice his own son to assuage his own uh, despair. The old paganism, where Theoden is tempted to despair by the worm tongue, by the by the mouth of the devil. And yet ultimately it's hope that triumphs and he goes to war fully willing to die um, uh, for the good cause. So I, that's what I see where I, I always couple Denethor with Theoden and of course Denethor as the, as the one who succumbs to the power of the Palantir stone. Um, Elrond, I'm not sure that Elrond, other than the elves, I didn't talk about the elves, I would love to. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do a tantalizing thing. Again, go, go read my books. But Elrond, of course, as, a, as, as representative of the elves, Tolkien says that when he, when he does talk about the Lord of the Rings being an allegory in one of his letters, says it's an allegory of power, but deeper than that, it's an allegory of death and immortality. Right? So it's an allegory of mortality and immortality. And the, um, the elves are immortal. They don't die. Right? And what Tolkien says about this is a Christian. right? So what it means is they're not living eternally we're not going into the presence of god because you have to go through the gateway of death to do that that's the path christ took there's no other way of getting there except that way so if you don't take that path you look for the elixir of life as the medieval alchemist did or you're an elf who's doomed to be immortal you're trapped in the veil of tears the valley of tears in the land of exile which is why the elves say of men that death is the gift of Iluvata, the, the gift of God to men, because they know they go somewhere else and they escape this valley of tears. Um, and they see history, they obviously history is the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. And Tolkien in one of his letters says, that as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. So there's something very profound about who the elves are. I think Elrond, as a representative of the elves, uh, signifies that. As an individual, I'm not sure that he does. Well, wow, okay. thank you. Um, one, I think we can bring about 20 questions together into one, and that is what about the female characters that he uses? And specifically, do, is, does, uh, does the mother of God come through in any of his characters? Yeah, Tolkien says in one of his letters that he put all of his love for the Blessed Virgin into his characterization of Galadriel. And, and I would say that in the extended version of, uh, of uh, The Lord of the Rings, we do get that sense in the, as, as, they're, as they're saying goodbye to Galadriel, the image is very Marian. She reminds us of Our Lady of Fatima. Um, so there's that Marian imagery in Galadriel. Um, beyond that, I mean, there's lots of Marian imagery. Uh, it's uh, when uh, um, Eowyn, destroys the witch king right so a, a demonic a demon um uh uh he, this, the, the, the witch king says do you not know that no man can destroy me and she says i am no man right and basically it's, it's the blessed virgin with the crushing the foot of the serpent underfoot mm -hmm. so there are various different aspects of the marian imagery and the depiction of the female characters in the lord of the Rings. wow wonderful wonderful uh, okay, Jen has it. Jen, you gotta take yourself off a of mute. There has a question. Go ahead, Jen. Can you speak to why all of the ring bearers had to leave Middle Earth? I, I think when I first read it, I was sort of expecting 
Middle Earth is going to be redeemed and everything is going to be happy in the end and then they all leave. And it was a little bit um, unexpected. So could you speak to what that might have been representative of? Absolutely, Jan, a, prof a profound question. Uh, because Tolkien believed that heaven does not belong on Earth, that uh, history is the long defeat, that basically once you triumph over evil, you have to leave this world, go into the mystic West, right, which is on the imagery of St. Brendan's mystical voyage, you know, uh, in, in, into the West. Um, so ultimately, you have to leave the bent world behind, the world that's, that's, that's fallen, and, and enter eternity, enter something beyond, which is why it ends. The, world, the, book, the, the book doesn't actually end. The Lord of the Rings doesn't end with, uh, with them standing with the Mystic West. It ends with Sam going back home to the Shire to his wife and children. And he says, well, I'm back. And it's sort of very anticlimactic. Because, you know, yes, you know, he's got a wonderful wife who loves him. He's got wonderful children. The Shire is healthier. Now they've, 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 uh, you know, this, they've, they've scoured the Shire of the evil presence. But it's got to come back again. It's a fallen cosmos. And evil always comes back like a fungus. Every time you defeat it, it comes back like a fungus. It's the very fabric of the cosmos. Sam has not left. Sam is still there in the long defeat. He's with us. He's with the reader. We are in the long defeat. And I, so Tolkien ends exactly as he should, leaving us where we are, right? Not in a, not in a happy ending uh, beyond where we are. He takes us back to where we are. Okay, I've just shown you this. Now go out and you've got to fight it yourself now. Beautiful. I'm pretty jazzed about our program tonight, and, uh, and uh, I don't usually say that. So uh, thank you so much, Professor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.